Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Well friends, I do greet you all in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good to see each and every one of you. I love praising the Lord together with you, enjoying singing the praises of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. We come now to the high point in our worship service. It's the reading of scripture. Not just the reading of scripture, but the proclamation of God's word is the high point of the Protestant worship service. And so now, this morning, we turn to 2 Corinthians. We've been in 2 Corinthians for a while. This morning, we're going through a whole chapter, chapter 7. Chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. 15 verses, we start at the second verse. You went up to the first verse last week. Um, because the first verse really belonged with what was coming before. If you can turn to 2 Corinthians in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the 7th chapter. Here the rustle of paper has come to an end. Even before we read from God's word, let me, let me tell you a story. A few years ago, I sat in a wimpy across the table from a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. The weight of my heart pressed against my throat as I begged him to turn away from a sin. Even now, I remember the dismay as his hearing turned to rejection and his anger grew within him and toward me for daring to speak out. What followed was two years, two terrible years of bitterness and anger and animosity between the two of us. The pain and the heartache that I felt was so intense that I began to swim to cope with what I was feeling. I swam because under the water, I could cry out in pain. I could even shout in anger. But the water... It's solitary escape from the chaos of a fractured relationship wasn't really a solution at all. Have you ever found yourself in a similar situation? Perhaps not the exact same circumstances, but can you relate to the mess of a broken relationship? A place where hope of restoration seems different. A, a, a place of the possibility of restoration feels like an unattainable dream. Maybe you feel that you're in a place like that this morning. 
Maybe you find yourself in a state like that today. Maybe it'll happen to you tomorrow. Well, there is good news in this text for you this morning, friend. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at the second verse through to the 16th verse, gives us hope. Restoration of relationship with God and with one another is possible in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to look at three keys to three keys to relational restoration. And the first key is mutual acceptance. Mutual acceptance. You're going to see that from verse two to verse four. And really what that means is that we are, if we want to be restored to one another, we are to open up our hearts to one another finding comfort and joy again in our relationships. The second key to relational restoration can be found from verse 5 to the first half of verse 13. And it is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. And what that really means is that heartfelt sorrow for our wrongs needs to lead to a transformation of life in God-given repentance. And the third point, the third key to relational restoration is willful obedience. That can be found at the end of our text, the second half of verse 13 through to verse 16. And it is willful obedience, a sincere commitment to follow God's commands exemplifies our love for him and our love for one another. So, three keys to relational restoration. I trust that this is gonna be very practical for you and for your life and for the relationships in your life, particularly those which presently are broken and need restoration. The first key, verse two to four. Read along with me in your own Bibles, mutual acceptance. Paul writes, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness to you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in my affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Second key to relational restoration is found from verse five to verse 13a. It's genuine repentance. Read along with me in verse five. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your 
zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. The third key to godly grief in this text is willful obedience, and it can be read from the second half of verse 13 to the end of verse 16. And besides our own comfort, We rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts are made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all how you received them with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Just so far in the reading of God's word. Friends, in this text, there are three keys to relational restoration. And the first key is mutual acceptance. Verse two to four, mutual acceptance. If you're taking notes, That's the first point, mutual acceptance. Read verse two along together with me. Make room in your hearts, Paul writes to the Corinthians. And then he says, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Paul commands the Corinthians to accept him. This isn't a suggestion. This open-heartedness, Paul writes, is for your good and will be for God's glory. Why? Because I've accepted you, Paul says. You know this. Look at the way that I've always treated you. I've never wronged you. I've never corrupted you. I've never taken advantage of you. Accept me. Because I have always treated you right. Verse three. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts. To die together and to live together. Paul 
isn't accusing the Corinthians of anything in this passage. He planted the church in Corinth. You can read about that this afternoon in Acts chapter 18. And shortly after Paul had left the city, he received a letter from them detailing problems which had cropped up in the church. 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to those problems. Now, one of the problems, this is important to understand the context of what's going on in chapter 7. One of those problems that he addressed was a man was living with his father's wife. That's disgusting. But instead of mourning over that sin, the Corinthians refused arrogantly to remove the man from their church, church discipline. So Paul wrote to the church to tell the church to exercise church discipline. But the Corinthians, unbelievably, even as they received God's word in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians refused to accept that letter. And so Paul, who clearly cared about them deeply, went and visited them to deal with the situation one-on-one, personally. At this stage, I imagine that you're thinking that a personal visit by an apostle would be the end of it. But Paul's visit to the Corinthians completely tanked. The relationship between Paul and the Corinthians deteriorated. It was completely broken. To such an extent, can you believe it, Paul couldn't even face visiting them again. And so instead, Paul wrote another letter to them. That letter, which we do not have, a letter that was written in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, was written by Paul with anguish and with tears, urging them to repent. Yeah, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul isn't pointing fingers at them. He is saying that he has an open heart towards the Corinthians and now, turns out, they have an open heart towards him too. Paul is for them. And they are for Paul. Relationally right now, they are in a good place. Paul is saying, I'm not being judgy, judgy yet. Because we're in this together. Verse four. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. I am in all my affection overflowing in joy. The tension between the apostle and the church has has been released. Paul can now take pleasure. Paul can now take joy. Paul can now take delight in them. Despite the difficulties that Paul is always facing. Their their mutual acceptance of one another soothes his souls. It gives him comfort. It grants him peace. It lightens his load. Paul is saying, I accept you. 
and our togetherness puts me at ease and makes me smile. In this text, there are three keys to relational restoration. The first is mutual acceptance, open-heartedness toward one another. The second key to relational restoration is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. You can read along with me from verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, Paul writes, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But, but God, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing as he told us of your mourning, as he told us of your zeal for me. In actual fact, that portion could be read, as he told us of your longing for me, as he told us of your mourning for me, as he told us of your zeal for me, so I rejoiced still more. To understand what is going on here, we need to go back just a little bit to the second chapter of Second Corinthians. In verse 12 and 13, we read that Paul went down to a city of Troas to preach the gospel of Christ there, but he couldn't shake this relational breakdown that had occurred with the Corinthians from his mind. He was perplexed. He was bewildered. It was a sticking point. He was dwelling on it day and night, and so he sent Titus, his son in the faith to Corinth, to get news about the Corinthians. Whilst he might not have been able to go himself, he still wanted to know, are things right with these people? Now, Titus hadn't returned yet. And Paul in Troas is sitting there and his spirit is restless. He is in turmoil. Paul needs to know that this rift has been resolved. So Paul decides to head out to Macedonia and on the way to Corinth hopes to meet Titus and get news from Titus there. Then there's a big pause from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 7 as Paul describes his ministry. But in chapter 7, we come to this place for even when we came into Macedonia, Paul headed out from Macedonia hoping to bump into Titus Now Paul has come into Macedonia, and guess what? I don't know the exact details, but I do know that God happened in this text. There's been a but God moment. Maybe Paul is walking on the road between one town and another, and as he comes to arise, he he sees someone walking up over the mountain, and He thinks it might be, could it possibly be, they get closer and closer, and guess who it is? Titus. (laughs) Titus coming in the opposite direction. And they hug, (laughs) and they laugh, and they enjoy one another's company for a bit, and then things get serious. As Paul asks the question that is on his heart, what about the Corinthians? 
nothing's fixed. And Titus gives him the news. Paul, they long for you. <laughs> Not only that, Paul, they, they mourn for you and everything that's happened. Paul, they, they're sorry. Not only that, actually it's even better. Paul, they are zealous for you. Paul's heart breaks out in joy. Yahoo. <laughs> God's given us peace since we know you are for us. And that makes us grin from ear to ear. Verse eight. For even if I made you grieve in my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it for I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For I see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Guys, this next bit is the most important part of this story. So pay attention to what happens next. They listened. They listened. They received that sorrowful letter from Paul, the the one that Paul sent because he could not bear to go and face them one-on-one. They received that sorrowful letter and it cuts them to their hearts didn't just hurt Paul to write it. It hurt them to receive it. They read it and it laid their hearts bare. They, they read it and it put their sin on display. They read it and they hated what they saw. Now at that point, they might have said, sorry, we made a mistake. Paid lip service to the sin that they committed, but they didn't. Not only did they listen, they repented. They repented. Friends, saying sorry isn't the same as repenting. Saying sorry is acknowledging that you were wrong. Repenting is acknowledging that you were wrong and turning away from the wrong, turning towards that which is right. The difference between sorry and repentance is life and death. I imagine you've experienced this. I certainly have. A person offends you and they say that they are sorry But in time, it's evident that their apology was a lie because it doesn't change their actions toward you. They just go on the same way 
that they did before. The man who cheats on his wife and when confronted says, I'm sorry, but continues the adulterous relationship. The colleague who falsely maligns you in front of your co-workers and when confronted says, I'm sorry, but makes no effort to retract their statements. The child who steals from your purse, when confronted, says, I'm sorry. But next week, they're just stealing from your purse again. That's sorry. I've been caught out. That's sorry. I've been called out. That's sorry which leads to death. Repentance is something else. Godly grief. Godly grief. Godly grief leads to repentance. And that changes everything because it leads to salvation. Work backwards with me. The change in life points to a change in heart, which means that the words that were spoken were genuine. The man who cheated on his wife, when confronted, repents and breaks off the adulterous relationship. The colleague who falsely maligned you in front of co-workers when confronted repents. They retract their statements. The child who stole from your purse when confronted repents and doesn't steal from you again. Do you want to know what repentance for the Corinthians looked like? That man that we read about in 1 Corinthians, that man that is spoken about in 2 Corinthians who was living with his father's wife, that one who they didn't mourn over, the one that they refused to remove from the church, repentance looked like them being eager to clear themselves in this text. Repentance looked like indignation towards sin in this text. Repentance looked like fear for the consequences of their sin in this text. Repentance looked like a stirring of affection and a longing towards Paul in this text. Repentance looked like zealousness to do that which is right in this text. Repentance means that the church disciplined the man out of their community. Repentance meant that they proved themselves innocent in the matter. Repentance looked like change. Restoration happened because the Corinthians listened. It might have hurt, but the pain produced repentance leading to salvation, which beats sorrow leading to death. Verse 12. So, Although I wrote to you, it was for the sake of the one who it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your eagerness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. And therefore we were comforted. And Paul in this text has been vindicated. He's not the victor in a fight. Paul's vindication comes because. 
his plea to the Corinthian has been achieved and his desired outcome has been realized. Their repentance has resulted in a testimony. This is his flow of thought beyond this passage. Last week we learned that being unequally yoked with false teachers would result in impurity. Yeah, we learn that open-heartedness towards Paul would result in transformation. And open-heartedness towards Paul bears a testimony of eagerness. Next week, we will learn that open-handedness towards the church in Jerusalem bears a testimony of genuine love. The point here is that repentance results in testimony. There is a testimony that comes forth from those who repent. The amazing thing about this testimony is that it bears witness, not to the watching world, although I have no doubt it does. The amazing thing about this testimony of repentance is it bears witness to you. Your repentance gives you assurance. Your repentance is what God uses to fight your guilt. Your repentance is what God uses to heal your heart. And your repentance bears witness to God. How? How do we bear witness to God? He who delights in the justification and sanctification and glorification of his children delights in your testimony of repentant faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now you have a testimony to yourself and before God and that is why I wrote, Paul says. In this text, there are three keys to relational restoration. The first key is mutual acceptance. The second key is genuine repentance. And the third key is willful obedience. Just those last few verses. Our text before us reads, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Can you imagine Paul and Titus for a moment? on that road in Macedonia where they've met, where they've laughed. Laughingly, Titus tells the news and Paul hears the news. They're not celebrating some mechanical duty, some mechanical decision. The Corinthians are doing as they, that the Corinthians are doing as they told. They are celebrating that the Corinthians' hearts have been changed. They're celebrating that their own hearts have been mended. Friends, celebrate transformation. And Paul's writing that they're laughing as they hear more about this Corinthian testimony. Verse 14. For whatever boasts are Made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all. How you received him with fear and with trembling. Paul is vindicated again and again and again. He had boasted to Titus about the Corinthians and now they proved him right. The Corinthians have a testimony, not only to themselves, 
not only before God, but before Titus too. And it's a testimony of obedience. Obedience is an essential part of the Christian faith. You can read about obedience throughout all of God's word. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, for instance, Jesus himself humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey. You will obey. You will obey my commandments. He has a dictionary definition of obedience. Obedience is submission to the restraint or command of authority. Biblical obedience or obedience is submission to the restraint or command of authority. Biblical obedience involves submission. To be obedient is to submit to the will of God. Biblical obedience involves command. To be obedient is to obey the commands of God in his word. Biblical obedience involves authority. To be obedient is to submit to the command of God whose authority is total and unequivocal. We obey because the word of God commands us to obey. But Christian obedience isn't a matter of wooden duty. Friends, we obey because we love God. And if we love God, we naturally have a love for one another. The Corinthians' love for God changed their heart towards sin in their midst. They repented and obeyed his word and their love for God changed their heart towards Paul. They repented and restored their relationship with him. Paul writes, you've proved to be obedient and receptive. Last verse, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul is saying, praise the Lord. Your testimony has assured me of your salvation. There's three keys in this text to relational restoration. The first key is mutual acceptance. The second key is genuine repentance. And the third key is willful obedience. How do we go about applying that in our lives? Let me start by saying that restoration of relationship with God and others is possible in Jesus. That's got to be good news for believers. Do you have a relationship right now that is in tatters? A relationship that feels broken beyond repair? Maybe tension with your spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, a colleague, an associate. Jesus is able to mend the bridges that you thought were burnt down. Even as you pursue mutual acceptance, genuine repentance, and willful obedience. What do I mean? Well, the first key to restoration of relationship is mutual acceptance. You both have to want to make it work. And you both have to open your hearts towards one another to make it work. Are you in the wrong? Examine yourself. 
Not every relational breakdown is because the other guy's wrong. Are you in the wrong? Open your heart toward the one that you have offended. Are they in the wrong? Open, are, they, are they in the right? Open your heart towards the one that has offended you. With mutual acceptance, relational restoration, without mutual acceptance, relational restoration is going to be shallow. So pursue mutual acceptance. The second key towards the restoration of a relationship is genuine repentance. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Don't say sorry and think everything will be okay, the relationship will be restored. Repent and demonstrate the fruit of repentance. Now, repentance isn't just for the beginning of the Christian life. I found a great quote this week written by the reformer, Martin Luther. He writes on this topic of repentance and us as believers in Christ. Martin Luther says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. If you're the one who has been wronged, and your brother or your sister approaches you in repentance, forgive. Don't hold out. Forgive and walk together in unity. Because without genuine repentance, restoration isn't going to happen. And so pursue genuine repentance amongst one another. The final key towards the restoration of relationship is willful obedience. Obedience to what God says. There is a repeated phrase in the New Testament that we would do well to commit to heart. The phrase promotes communal living, healthy communal living with restored relationships. It is a repeated phrase over and over again in the New Testament and it is the phrase one another. It occurs 100 times, 59 commands which teach us how to relate to one another. The command to love one another occurs 14 times, 16 times. But add to that, be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, build one another up. We, we are to be like-minded towards one another, accept one another, admonish one another. We're to greet one another with a holy kiss. Not so easy to exegete um, for those of us who have an English heritage. But it occurs four times in Scripture. We're to care for one another. We're to serve one another. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient with one another. Speak the truth in love and be kind and compassionate toward one another. We're to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to live out this list in community because you can't submit to one another or consider one another better than yourself or look out for the interests of one another from a distance. We have to bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another and encourage one another. We have to exhort and stir up and show hospitality toward and employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. 
We're to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. We're to pray for one another and confess our faults toward one another. This one anothering is how we obey the word of God in the context of relational restoration. Without willful obedience, restoration is only going to be lip service. And so pursue willful obedience. Restoration of relationships is possible as we pursue mutual obedience, uh, mutual acceptance, genuine repentance, and willful obedience. How does this apply to unbelievers here this morning? My friend, if you are sitting here this morning and you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, do not merely grieve over your sin. You must repent. Your life bears witness to you, to others, and before God that you are a sinner. You have sinned and fallen short of his glory and the wages of your sin will be death. You are under a condemnation of a holy God. You will face the wrath of a righteous God. Verse 10 of our text spoke of a godly grief producing a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. While Paul uses this phrase in the context of sanctification, growing in holiness of believers, it's no less true as it applies to justification, the moment of salvation. Godly grief over what? Your sin, which separates you relationally from God. Repentance towards what? Well, turning away from your sin and trusting that the death and resurrection of Jesus is enough to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Salvation unto what? Godly grief results in a restoration of relationship with God first and then with one another. Friend, in light of the gospel message, the death and resurrection of Jesus, you are to repent of your sin and believe in him And that leads to righteousness. And so call on the name of the Lord. Do so at once. Do so today. Do not delay. He will wash you of your sin and wipe your guilt away and be glorified in the restoration of relationship with him. This morning, in closing, we have looked at three keys to relational restoration. The first key was mutual acceptance. The second key was genuine repentance. And the third key was willful obedience. A few years ago, I sat in a wimpy across the table from a friend, the weight of my heart pressing against my throat as I begged him to turn away from sin. Even now, I remember the dismay as he rejected what I was saying and grew in anger toward me for daring to speak. What followed was two years of bitterness, two years of anger, two years of animosity between the two of us, the pain and the heartache I felt was so intense that I began to swim to cope with how I was feeling. Under the water's surface, I could 
cry out in pain and scream in anger. No one could hear. It was a solitary escape from the chaos of a fractured relationship. But it was no solution at all. Two years later, my friend came to genuine repentance. And it changed everything. He didn't just express sorrow. He demonstrated godly grief. And godly grief produced a changed life and an open-heartedness towards me and me towards him. And the result was restoration and joy. Lots and lots of joy for both of us. And for those who knew something of what had happened. Friends, restoration of relationship with God and with one another is possible. In Jesus Christ, amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, I do thank you for your spirit who is active and present even as we read your word and hear the teaching of your word. Would your spirit guide us into truth and guide us from error for your own name's sake? Would your spirit open eyes that are shut that they might see Jesus? Would your spirit, Lord God, cause hearts which have been seared to sin to be opened once again? That even in our wounds and even as we consider our sin toward one another, we might seek through genuine repentance restored relationships which bring glory to you. I thank you for your word. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.